This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, it's 4th Estate for the week, beginning Monday the 22nd of June 2015, live on 2SCR Radio and across the Community Radio Network, your weekly look at the world of journalism and the media. My name's Jack Fisher. This week, we're putting the spotlight on photojournalism, and I'm very lucky to be joined by some of Sydney's finest photojournalists here in the studio. Tamara Vaninsky, a freelance photographer and founder of the Australian photojournalism collective Oculi. Did I get that right? Welcome to Fourth Estate. We've also got Craig Greenhill, photojournalist with the Daily Telegraph. Hi, Craig. And we've got Sam Moy, photojournalist with the Australian Associated Press. How are you going? Hey, Jack. How are you? Yeah, very good, thanks. Now, you two are among the Photostrata Collective, I should mention. Um, that's another Australian photojournalism collective. And also among Photostrata is Melbourne photojournalist Tracy Neamey, who you might have heard of recently. She's the photographer who took a photo of the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Peter Credlin, at a media event a couple of weeks ago, and she was asked by Credlin to delete the picture. I spoke to Tracy about it a little bit earlier. I can't see a reason why a politician would ask for a photo to be deleted um, unless they were breaking, uh, unless a photographer was breaking the law and getting the photo, say by photographing through their bedroom window or their bathroom window without asking permission. They might wish that you hadn't taken it and wish that it was deleted, but that's out of the question. This is the first time it's ever happened to me, but Peter Cradlin is a um, politician, so. It's never happened that a politician's asked for a photo to be deleted. So. What was your take on the uh, the sort of uh, non-photographer's area that she was trying to get at when you spoke to her? It was just a hallway. I hadn't been told that there weren't areas I was allowed to photograph in, so I didn't know that supposedly this area was a non-photography area. We were just told that we weren't allowed to come through the front part of the police station for security reasons, and that was all. Um, and afterwards, the police told me that it was fine. Um, that I photographed in the area as long as you couldn't see anything on the walls behind her. So, Is it conceivable that she just thought it was an unflattering photo or do you think there's some sort of political element to it? Um, I think it was a political element to it. I think she just didn't want to be photographed or be seen or be in the spotlight at all. So I think that was her take on it. Is photojournalism, is it generally a game of ask forgiveness rather than permission? Uh, because we don't set up photos um, to recreate the event if we miss it the first time. You have to often shoot first and uh, ask questions later or you'll miss the picture. 
Um, in some cases, like photographing children, I'll ask permission from the parents after I've taken the photo and we'll go by their guides on that. But um, yes, often you have to take the photo first or you miss the moment. And so when Peter was saying, could you delete that please? And you were saying, well, I have to speak to my chief of staff first. You have to stand up to that, don't you? Yes, yes. Well, unfortunately, um, we get these kind of requests regularly in our day-to-day duties and we have a um, a policy, we just don't delete photos. So I'm kind of used to telling people that, no, I can't can't delete the photo. So for that situation, I did really need to just speak to my picture editor first. And... To what extent are you regularly considering, I suppose, the political implications of a photo that you take when you're, when you're chasing it and when you're composing it? We're always looking for pictures which will illustrate what is happening um, in politics at the time. I don't really consider the political implications as such, but I try and provide a fair and accurate portrayal of the event and um, take photos that will work well with current and future stories and politics. That's AAP photojournalist Tracy Nimi speaking there about the picture that she took of Peter Credlin a couple of weeks back. You're on Fourth Estate. My name's Jack Fisher, and I'm joined, joined by photojournalist Tamara Vaninsky, uh, Craig Greenhill, and Sam Moy. Sam, how often does a subject ask for their photo to be deleted? I think it's really hit and miss with that, Jack. I mean, we find it, <clears throat> depending on the circumstance, um, I've had it a fair few times in my career, uh, I can say safely that across multiple organisations I've worked for, we don't delete pictures. Um, we know then we work within a bound of uh, the boundary of, of media ethics and, and the rule of law, and we sort of operate in terms of image collation based on that. Would you agree, Tamara? Absolutely. Um, I've been a photographer for over 30 years, and I've never been asked to delete a photograph in my entire career. And um, I think politicians like celebrities know when they're on. And in a situation like this, everyone would have been would have known there were f- photographers around. And um, Craig, what do you do in that sort of a situation? It's a bit of an un- unusual request. It sounds like oh, it's it's not unusual for me to be challenged by a subject or someone that doesn't want to be photographed uh, or even someone that has been photographed with permission and they go, oh, I don't like that photo, can you delete it? I, the, you're guided by the law. If you if mm. you know what the law is, you know your rights mm. and uh, if you, and then you, you don't delete photos unless your employer, because my employer owns the photograph, so you put it to them. It always takes the pressure off, but it doesn't mean that uh, it stops people from getting aggressive in your face. Um, I've had... a a boss of mine uh, being uh, harassed by the police quite f- and physically manhandled to get photographs off him, and the police was totally in the wrong. And how often is there a, a, a sort of grey area there? Because I'm, I'm thinking of perhaps sort of shooting from, often you hear this, shooting from a public property onto private property and that sort of thing. The law is not grey. If you have an understanding of the law and how it works and and an, to be refreshed on how it works, um, I you know I hate to be quoted on the law, but I always go back and find out for myself what what is the law change, and there's a black and white. Um, if people think that there are laws to protect them to be photo- from being photographed, even if they're in a private residence, and often the case they don't have that protection. Often uh, parents think their kids have special protections because they're at the beach or in a swimming pool. But there is, photography-wise, there isn't specific laws saying you can't photograph the children. 
Um, there are laws against pedophile and 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 and, and so on. So that it's um, there are grey areas in that way, but it all comes down to intention, and where we've got an intention to record things for to document history. Hmm. Tracy obviously stood her ground to Peter Credlin. We saw a few, maybe a few months back, there was an NITV news journal, photo, oh, sorry, video journalist who was challenged by the police to hand over his footage. What do you do in that sort of a situation, Sam? Do you have to just sort of stand your ground? You stand your ground. And again, it comes down to having that education and, and knowing where you stand in the rule of law uh, and uh, the public view. So if you're in within public view and you can see or see an event unfolding, you are well within your eyes to actually stand and document it. Yeah. What do you think, Tamara? Well, I, th- I believe I- I've always gone by a, 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 not only a sixth sense of what's right and what's wrong in these situations, but I've uh, undertaken a lot of ethics and law training. So I, I know my rights as a photographer and in, in various countries where I travel. And as I said before, I've, I've never had these image, images demanded um, to be deleted or anything of that nature. Um, but you know, as photographers, we're, we're often putting our, our lives on the line to witness these stories unfolding and to bring them back to be published. And um, we, everyone in this room is very well educated as to what our rights are, but also the respectful way to go around Mm. about taking photographs. Craig, when a subject does challenge you, is that for reasons of vanity or is it because they're seen something, doing something that they don't want to be seen doing? Often the intention of my photographs are to capture people who are doing things they shouldn't be doing um, when, when they've been photographed without their permission. And uh, they obviously don't want that record um, to be shown. And, you know, it, it, it's sort of, as a press photographer, it's sort of, I, I, I'm a bit of a chaser. And if I see someone doing something wrong, <laughs> I'm a bit, bit, you know, a bit like the traffic cop, uh, my, my job is to get a photograph of them doing that. Mm. And I guess I, I'm, a, I'm a tool for my newspaper to do that. Mm. You know, that, that, that's, it's a way of them um, proving that people are breaking the law. Yeah, Sam, a few couple of years ago, I think you were set upon in public by, was it a union official? <laughs> Yeah, it, it was, look, again, kind of, you know, it's not the first time this has sort of happened to me in my career, but certainly probably the most well-publicised um, event. Uh, it was documented by a colleague of mine. Uh, it was a, a union official that was at the heart of an AWN ruling Royal Commission from memory, um, who just happened to be the ex-boyfriend of Julia Gillard. Uh, and, again, chasing down, and I... I knew where I stood in terms of um, public view and he, it was actually on the opening day of this inquiry and it beggars belief that this particular person was actually sitting across the road having a cup of coffee despite not needed to appear or be anywhere within the vicinity. It was just kind of potluck. And a colleague of mine and I decided to get a Today picture of him or what we call a Today picture which basically involves us going and photographing him. Um, we knew where we stood in terms of um, media and common law and uh, sometimes you've just got to get in front of it. And we initially gave the this particular individual a bit of space and to do it respectfully and unfortunately he didn't want to be a part of it, which is understandable, he didn't want to be photographed. So we chased him 
and we got in front of him and he didn't like that and then he got very aggressive very quickly and sometimes this is part and parcel of news gathering that people don't like being photographed um however he in terms of a in terms of an image capture point of view we were 100% in the right and it was on a public street and my colleague got a series of pictures of me which managed to find its way onto every front page around the country which is never what you want you never want to be part of the story but sometimes you uh, it just transpires that way so is there ever a sense that i suppose the lens becomes a bit of a a barrier between you and the world absolutely right and this is what i've found in terms of um hostile environments or conflict photography is that sometimes you can use it to your advantage and that it can be and other photojournalists have have called it a shield uh, but it can also be seen as the other side of the coin, which is you're a target because you've got a camera in front of your face. In fact, as soon as you put the cameras down, nine times out of ten, they tend to back down and walk away. And it's not there to uh, incite violence. In fact, quite the opposite. You just want to get in and do your job and get a clean picture of a person and and file it and get on your way. But sometimes that they they can... Yeah, do you think the sense of uh, what a camera means in public is, has changed at all, Tamara? Do you feel like photojournalists are perhaps under threat more than ever? Oh, under threat. That's a good question. Um, oh, look, when I first started in photography, you know, big film cameras transpires to smaller film cameras. Um, now I carry a lot of digital cameras. Um, I, I, I've never felt um, like a target. Um, I've, I've had two concussions <laughs> in my life as a photographer, but it's not through being a target. It was various media, media scrums, and you, you, you two were both probably both there. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably my um, elbows. <laughs> it probably was. <laughs> I think it was a, a television um, news camera um, hitting me in the head or something along those lines. But, anyways, um, no, I, I, I've ne- I've never felt like I'm I'm a target, but. I think, as I said before, I have developed the sixth sense about where to be and what to do. And I think we all have this thing that keeps us alive in any sort of daily situation, daily news situation, daily situation, photographing on the streets or being overseas or wherever you might be, that you you can you can feel the energy. You know what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And you follow those, mm. those cues because those are the cues that keep you alive mm. as a photographer. And really, I think the people who experience this the most would be um, photojournalists either still or film photographers, um, videographers, where you're right there witnessing life unfolding in front of you. And so you, you're the first person who's between, you know, a conflict and uh, or in front of a conflict and situations can get out of control. Not luckily for me, they ha- they never have. But I think for these guys, they might have a different si- scenario. Craig, I was asking Tracy there about to what extent she considers the political implications of a photo when she's framing it, when she's composing it, that sort of thing. Is that something that's running through your mind when you're in the field? Oh, not such implications, but uh, politicians are easy targets. Sometimes you you might want to look for a nice photo, but they're 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 not people that they're not models so they're easy to uh to make look awkward or in scenarios where they don't like it so the the controls on the media are getting tighter and tighter they like to have fixed press conference they don't want anything going out of control out of out of their field i mean you can see uh the 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 prime minister has his own personal photographer now Mm -hmm. who's taken the power of of what we do and put in a positive way you know you can shoot 
you can show the positive side of people. I've had people, uh, you know, like Nathan Rees, the Premier of New South Wales, back a few years ago. He had a, a, a bit of a tell on a press conference. He was quite a boring person at a press conference talking, but if you fired a shutter at him often enough and, you know, just rattle it off, it, it rattles him. Hmm. And he used to get a tear coming to his eye. So you get that emotional side coming out of him, and I guess you're having a bit of an influence on, on what he looks like, but... Um, it was a little bit of fun, but uh, you know, he, he, you could see that he was melting under pressure, and I guess that's what I was trying to show. Mm. Here on Fourth Estate, my name's Jack Fisher, and I'm joined by photojournalists Tamara Vaninsky, Craig Greenhill, and Sam Moy. Now, Tamara, you were a longtime photojournalist and picture editor with Fairfax Media, and Fairfax photo departments, well, they've suffered pretty heavy cuts in recent years. And it seems a testament, actually, to their photo newsrooms that they've survived some of those cuts to a degree. It seems that management there have really sought to shift to a get a deal that they have with Getty Images. What does a shift like that? How does that impact upon quality? Well, I I was I was made redundant from Fairfax in two thousand twelve, and the get Getty, Getty deal came in um, I, I believe about two years later um, after I left Fairfax, and I'm I think in a lot of ways I'm still on the sidelines assessing what that deal has meant for the Sydney Morning Herald, the Age and the Australian Financial Review who all have very specialised needs for their photography for various um, sections of the of the newspapers, um, for um, the different magazines. Um, and Getty is not considered a specialist photo agency and it's not a one-size-fits-all um Solution that that was my thought a few years ago. Now I'm I'm not in the newsroom, so and I'm not picture editing there, so I, I don't know how that has impacted. But I, I know it in in terms of Oculi and the Photographic Collective, we always try to maintain our um, independence. Um, from big organisations like Getty or Corbis, and we never want to make alliances with other organisations that um, uh, would turn into a Getty, where our images would just become part of Getty or become part of Corbis or um, whatever agency. So I think um, I, I think you'd have to ask someone who's actually yeah. within the organisation now, and maybe these guys might have some insight as well. What do you think, Greg? So I work for the Daily Telegraph, and up until Getty came on to the scene, um, I would see regularly see Sydney Morning Herald photographers t- turn up to news events that we turn up to, and uh, we just don't see any representative on most events that we go to now. So uh, um, they aren't a news gathering organisation. That they're, they're well, not typically in Australia. They they're very good at sport. They're very good at covering events. You know, they, they, they like big contracts like Fashion Week and they take over Fashion Week and, well, and to some degree push out all the other smaller photographers. Um, it, you don't see them on the road. They don't have... They're losing... If you lose the Fairfax news photographers, you're losing all the news instincts and hundreds of years of knowledge of uh, how to work on a, on a news event... Um, you know these these guys. Most of most of the guys at Fairfax have been there more than a decade, if not two, and it would be a big shame to lose the existing ones. Yeah. So what I'm getting a sense of is it's one cent. It's one thing to be shooting fashion events and events basically, and it's another to get that sort of reportage style photography into the papers. 
what's the struggle like to yeah to really push that that style of photography Tamara well in, in terms of in terms of Fairfax and the Sydney Morning Herald there was um a lot of there, there's a beautiful style to the photographs um and with all the the redundancies um there's thousands of years of experience in picture editing photography that's walked out the door um which historically is just absolutely horrible but in in terms of um oculi the photographic collective i'm part of um one one thing we've always maintained is is independence and to to be free from the mainstream media and traditional models um, such of, of that nature, and to um, um, basically to document the the world around us and and for um, history and to show the extraordinary and the ordinary and the um, the beauty the wonder and the struggle of everyday life through photography and. I think if you if you try to um, um, pigeonhole photography that that it's part of this particular agency, part of um, that there some of the best photographers in the world are based here in Australia, mm. and the problem is that the work is not being shown. There were there were problems back in two thousand when we first started Oculi, and trying to publish long-term projects and photo essays, trying to find outlets within Australia. And that's why we created the group. But here we are 15 years later and the market is nearly gone. The editorial market is is gone for photography. And it's 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 horrific. <laughs> it's um yeah. Sam some of the uh, positives perhaps. I mean technology has obviously changed the game a lot. Does that mean deadlines have shifted forward and is that more difficult or has it become easier? Well, if we're talking, if we're talking about news gathering uh, as a daily publisher, then at AAP we publish as quickly as we have it. That's the point of a wire agency is we, to get our images out first and for publications to lean on us to get images for the, for the digital platforms. In terms of reportage, this is kind of where we're finding that the print space isn't there anymore or the magazines such as the Bulletin, unfortunately, have closed down, which used to show fantastic reportage uh, from some of Australia's finest, including Ocli members and um, some members from Photostrata as well. We're at a point where we need to look at how we utilise the digital platform and what we turn the multimedia product into and how we utilise those pictures to the best of our ability. Um, we, we're sort of on the precipice of, of really turning it into great products again. But it, where's the market? That's the other thing. You're on Fourth Estate. My name's Jack Fisher. Thinking about my favourite quote, Sam was asking in the break, what's my favourite quote about photojournalism? Well, it's this. It's by Susan Sontag. She once wrote about conflict and tragedy photography. The shock of photographed atrocities wears off with repeated viewing. In the past decades, concerned photography has done at least as much to deaden conscience as to arouse it. I want to ask, would you guys agree, Craig? Well, possibly. We've seen a lot of gruesome, uh, in-your-face um, death in, in, the, in the last decade. And uh, I think it's a challenge for photojournalists to find other ways of capturing it without not just getting over the top of gruesome bodies uh, and showing you know, a well-pressed... Um, Winner this year, Jerome Sassini, he had a, a beautiful set of images from the MH17 crash disaster, uh, which showed death but in a different way. 
and show to the environment and you know interlink with more human emotions in the package than just um you know just seeing a body which i guess people just don't want to see consistently one of the big uh, discussions we had on the show last year was around um the telegraph i think it was publishing the um isis beheading photo 2014 was obviously a really dark year are people becoming desensitized by that sort of photography do you think sam that's a good question, Jack. Um, I think it really comes down to the story. Um, I think aside from the the hard news value uh, and the immediacy of the event, I think you need to look at also ways of telling that story without just graphic images. Um, I think we need to look at a wider scope, but you won't probably find that these days in print as you would have 10 years ago but how we can try and put that on a multimedia platform um are people being desensitized i think i think yes um but we have to find different ways of telling and getting our story across so how do you then make that decision of or do we show this do we not what sort of um benchmark does it have to fulfill um for a photo editor to choose to put something that's perhaps a little bit risque or perhaps a little bit gruesome well, just to go back a little bit, um, I think we live in a in an era that's completely image saturated, mm. and it takes a really extraordinary image to make a viewer stop and look again. And as a as a picture editor, I think, and as a photographer as well, by focusing on an, the emotional heart of a story visually, photojournalists can capture very powerful images that can draw a reader into a story, and by composing the photographs. Um, in a way to not show, as Craig had mentioned, the gruesomeness um, of, of a tragedy or a conflict. It's an art form. It takes courage and vision and intuition, logic, and even the ability to think quickly on your feet and constantly looking for better images that communicate the story. And I think that's the important thing. It's communicating the story and, the, and finding the power of the image and getting those images out there. Um, and these photographers are witness every day to these daily stories the fact that we're an image saturated society and many people just flick through images very quickly um i think that makes the photographers have to work harder to come up with these extraordinary images particularly of events that are perhaps gruesome and contain conflict and tragedy and people go oh whatever let, let's let's bring people back to the image and to the heart of the story. Yeah. Now, the Nikon Walkley uh, uh, Awards will be later this year showcasing some of the best Australian photojournalism. Craig, you took a photo from, well, you took a few photos from the Cronulla riots, what, 10 years ago. They were certainly very confronting. Was that a bit of a, a watershed moment for Australian photojournalism? It seems like they really cut through in a way which some of the reporting may not have. Well, it was a unique event that uh, we, we hadn't seen for a long time where uh, the crowd uh, turned into a riot sort of scenario where um, we had access to the, the subjects weren't thinking about their actions mm. and thinking about the media's uh, influence or, or uh, impact after the event. Mm. So, um, you know, it was it was a, you know, it was a watershed moment for, for my career uh, learning not to hesitate, just get in there. As Tracy said earlier, you know, shoot first, ask questions later. 
you know, the reporters were nowhere up to the speed that the photographers were up to that day capturing what was actually happening. If only we had technology that we have today where we could have published instantaneously. Yep. But that was 10 years ago where we were, hey, these are good pictures for tomorrow's paper. Yeah, I don't think they would have been seeking forgiveness for any of the subjects on that one. That's it from us on Fourth Estate this week. Don't forget you can check out all of our podcasts on the 2SER website. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you to our guests, Greg Greenhill, uh, Tamara Vaninsky and Sam Moy. Um, my name's Jack Fisher. We'll be back at the same time next week. Thank you.